listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Water Tanks, the most trusted name in water storage in Australia. For over 30 years, they've remained the industry leader by continually improving the engineering and technology that goes into every tank. Superior technology gives you superior peace of mind for your precious water storage. Welcome back to the Central Station podcast. Imagine this, building a pastoral lease from scratch. I'm talking about walking onto a piece of land that has never been managed or developed. No fences, no man-made waters, no roads, nothing. Sounds like something from the 1800s, right? A story of the settlers? Well, this actually happened in the late 1980s when Chris Hengler purchased a new pastoral lease in the East Kimberley. In this episode, we find out how a Swiss backpacker ended up purchasing an Australian cattle station, why there's still no road access to Kachana over 30 years later, and about one man's mission to bring regenerative agriculture to the Kimberley. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steph. Now, it's not very often we actually get to record our episodes on cattle stations, and today we are here at Katana Station with a really awful, disgusting view, like it's just a horrible place to be. Um, hopefully, the listeners can pick up that that was sarcasm, because we are in paradise. Can you tell us a bit about Katana Station and where we are for, you know, I think many people even in the Kimberley aren't particularly aware uh, or many, many of the ringers and let alone people from around the country. Tell us where we are and, and what you can see. First of all, thank you for flattering us by calling us a station. We've got a pastoral lease. It's actually one of the smallest in the Kimberley. It's the bottom fifth of the original El Questro. And through chance, we were able to get our own pastoral lease in 1989. And then we created Access, and we've been living out here as a family since 1991, Christmas 1991. Ninety-one, we moved out. And I suppose many people will probably be familiar with El Questro to some extent. You know, that's sort of when you think East Kimberley, there's the big gorges and El Questro is just like this fancy resort and it's all just amazing gorges and rivers and trees. And so what kind of country are we on to, to describe where we are for people who have never been up here? What, How would you describe it? We've got rocky rangeland. There's... um. Cliffs, uh, some riparian valleys, a little bit of plateau country. It's country that no one wanted, which is why we had the opportunity in the first place. But it is absolutely beautiful. So we are out here, as I said, we're in Kachana Station. Technically, that's the name. You say it's not a station. It's pastoral lease, tomato, tomato. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that later on in the episode and explain to people if they're wondering why we're going back and forth on this. But I want to start off with... Um, you have such an interesting – well, I mean, everything about Kachana is so interesting and all the people on Kachana, which is not very many at the moment. There's just three of us. <laughs> um, when I go tomorrow, there will just be two. Um, where – let's start from right back from the beginning. So, I suppose for one 
well, for people who are listening, um, probably picked up you have a bit of an accent. So where are you from and where does this accent come from? Well, I was born and bred in Rhodesia and that's where I put in my first 15 years and then politics got in the way and my parents decided to send us to Switzerland where our ancestry was to finish high school. And by the time I finished high school, I didn't have a farm to go back to, so I kept going. So Rhodesia is in Africa? It's now Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. It's, it's and so were Africa. your parents from Switzerland then or were they from... They, they immigrated... A year before I was born. Okay. And, um, yeah, Rhodesia was home for all of us. So did you grow up speaking Swiss or, well, we've also, I've learned that people in Switzerland also speak German or did you speak like Afrikaans or whatever? I'm not sure. I know there's many languages in Africa, but did you speak one of the, those languages as well? Well, English was a language we had. We went to school. Well, was it? I guess this, the main language of the country, but there are a few native dialects and, um, my parents, knowing knowing that perhaps we may have to go and finish our schooling in Switzerland, they decided to speak German to us children. So we grew up bilingual, and so, which was very handy when we did have to finish our schooling in Switzerland. Yeah, that is. And so today you speak German, English, and a, a little bit of French. Yeah, it's very handy. And so, what kind of farm was it in Africa? Like, how big are we talking? What kind of animals or crops? It was a little mixed farm, 1,200 um, acres and another, sorry, 1,200 hectares and, and another one as big that we're just um, leasing next door. And um, Dad did a bit of cropping. He did a few years of dry land farming and the latitude is very similar to the Kimberley, similar sort of climate. And uh, the rainfall was just too unreliable, so he built, him, built a little dam, found it a good place to the dam and so we had a 70 70 hectares of irrigation two crops a year and then some cattle some sheep and then in the latter years he he complemented that with game farming and okay. that's 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 i guess that's where my taste for using animals in the landscape and multi-species and all that it all sort of started back there where I saw things working. Yeah. And I also saw how species can complement each other. And, and uh, when I came to Australia, I just saw there was, an, there was a vacuum of people, animals, and plenty of open spaces. And, and then when it got to the Kimberley, there was the water as well. So I thought, yeah. well, we've got the main ingredients, sunshine, water, and, and space. Let's, yep. let's see what's possible. Okay, and you mentioned that because of politics, you went to finish schooling in Switzerland. Yeah. What kind of politics for well, those we, of us who yeah. maybe were still not even around back then? <laughs> it was a, a civil war, um, and yeah, we lost our farm. Our farm was one of the first war, war areas or war zones. So it was taken taken it, off you. It's uh, the government changed in 1980, and we were the first lot of white farmers who lost their land. But the writing was already on the wall for us, and uh, but for a lot of my school friends, they they started they started losing their farms by the time we were fifty, and it was a lot harder. But in my situation, say so finished school, had nowhere to go, so I kept going. So I was able to start fresh with uh, preconceived ideas. And- 
Yeah, true, true. That's Australia with $150 as a tourist and spent 11 months having a great time looking around and left with $150. And as you do in those days, you, you weren't allowed to work as a tourist, but you're allowed to help. And if people offered you pocket money, well, oh, you, really? I was certainly a, I was thankful for that. If they gave me board and keep, I was thankful. And, yeah. And I was, and, uh, so it wasn't like the working visas that a lot of the, that a lot of, well, we rely on so many backpackers today, especially in this industry. So you weren't, you weren't like coming here to work. No, you know, I, to, I was, to get I was, your, I was I'd actually, I hadn't planned to come to Australia per se. I, Australia was going to be my, my first uh, stopover on the way around the world looking for a place where I could commit to. Oh, okay. And, and I had a three month visa. I thought, oh, well, let's have a look at Australia in three months. And I realized very quickly, you're not going to see Australia in three months. And three months became six months, became nine months. And by that time, I'd already started the immigration process. And when I applied for the further extension, they only gave me 11 months all up. So yeah. told me, get out of the country and apply from outside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so what did you do in that first year? Where did you go? You know, were you just. Did you just like start off in Sydney and see the beaches or did you just come straight up to the outback? Yeah, well, I, I landed in Sydney and uh, the first thing I bought was a map so I could find out how I could get out of the place as quick as possible. And I hitchhiked down the coast and I had an address of people um, near Braidwood and I was able to do a bit of rouseabouting in woolsheds and that gave me a bit of pocket money. So yep. I didn't have to dig into my reserves too much and, and, and there was a bit of distant family as well. So... And then, yeah, the, the job offers came yeah, as, as, as you sort of – or, or the invi invitations came and if you made yourself useful, well, the next thing you got a bit of pocket money. But uh, what really interested me was the cattle stations and and I met people who had uh, property uh, – when I was down south, I met people who had a property up in near Collinsville. And they, whereabouts is oh, – this is terrible because I'm from this country, <laughs> but whereabouts is that? 300 kilometers inland from Mackay. Okay, yeah, okay, fair enough. Yakima, There's a lot Yakima going on in Queensland, yeah. And um, – Yes, I guess Yakamanda Station, which has now been chopped up, um, is was the first cattle station I'd worked on, and that's when I realised, hang on, I could quite easily live in Australia for the rest of my life. Yeah, but I did want to see a bit more, so I did spend a bit more time travelling around. I worked on uh, uh, stations in Central Australia, and um, then yeah, how how old were you at this time? I was twenty one. And what was it like coming working on a station in Australia versus working with cattle in Africa? Had you, when you'd gone back to Switzerland for school, had you worked cattle there as well, or did you kind of take a break from the farming thing? Well, in Switzerland, everything was different, anyways. Yeah, but we had we had horses and cattle in Africa. Um, the Swiss cows, dairy cows, or the yeah, walking around the mountains as you could sort of pat and sit on, they were different again. Yeah, and then in Australia, it was a totally different game again and I, I enjoyed the the combination of using horses and cattle to work the cattle and and, and really enjoyed that. and then in the territory we were using motorbikes and I didn't mind riding motorbikes as yeah. either so it's just the outdoors and and it was just a great great lifestyle and, and um, great country and, and I met good people so I decided rather than spend rest of my time looking for the end of the rainbow let's come into this country and see if they'll have me <laughs> you already found the pot of gold yeah <laughs> and is it when do you think you had that moment i think you said before just when you'd gone up to collinsville and you decided well this is where i could be um what what was it so like if we can just dig into that a little bit further like is there some way you can articulate that moment well you know what was it about was it a combination of things or just was it one thing that you saw 
that made you be like, this is where I'm going to stay? It wasn't what I saw. It is what I felt. Like when my parents sent us to school in Switzerland, the valley that where that little town and the school was situated was the size of our farm. And then, so I felt very cramped. And then I came to Yakamanda and just to muster the horse paddock in the morning before we even started work, we had to muster the si- an area the size of the farm. And yeah. it just blew my sense of dimensions. And I thought, well, this is, this is good. Yeah. You know. <laughs> plenty of where, space to where, stretch your legs. Where else in the world do we have these opportunities? Yeah. And, and, and so you went back to Switzerland after to to redo the I had to, immigration I, process. I had to officially apply from Switzerland. Okay, and is that where you met your wife? How does uh, this all come about? Because the because the next time you returned to Australia, you returned with the wife and no 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 no. no, no. Or did Jackie you? came a lot later. Oh, okay. So that you did you come back to Australia? Yeah, then? I came back. Oh, interesting. I immigrated to Australia and yeah, and worked on stations. Had a few sponsors. Yep. And One, so whereabouts were you working? I worked. Um, Northeast of uh, Alice Springs mm-hmm. on Delmore Downs and Delney yep. Station, and then uh, I put in a bit of time at Vet Science at Sydney Uni, but that didn't stay for very long. I just realised I'm not going to stick it out for five years in yeah. a city like this. Wow! And then I, from there, I wanted to do Ag College in Orange, and I was advised by someone in the pastoral industry to go and see if I could go straight to the cutting edge and. And Stanbroke Partial Company took on that as sort of a jackaroo training program. Yeah. And I signed on as a jackaroo, and within two weeks, the boss gave me a head start. Not, not just gave me a stockman's wage. And yeah, so, so yeah, I, I just worked my way into the industry, tried to learn how things were done the Australian way, and got paid to do it, and got paid to do what I liked doing. And, and it was, you know, you didn't spend much money because you're out in the stock camp, and so once a year, I could have an internal airfare somewhere. I could every second year I flew to Europe. So it was at the time working on a station was good money. Not only that, the the the, the real fortunate part of it was that I came in 1979. That was a year after the cattle big cattle slump, mm-hmm. and 79, 80 cattle prices skyrocketed, and people on the land were spending money and were in. Yeah, they were in good form. Just for example, my boss at the time, he's, he only had to catch and sell six scrub bulls and it paid for a brand, brand new Toyota Land Cruiser ute with bull no and accessories. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think. Australia Those are the has, days. <laughs> we haven't got back to that yet. No. Goodness, no. Absolutely not. Um, man, if that was the case, if that's all you needed to do to get a new, a new Toyota, I'd be out there with a the bull catcher yeah, now. We'd, we'd have more bull. More cattle rustling going on, you reckon? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and so how many years do you think all up you worked on cattle stations? Well, how many years are we talking here? All right. So be about four years working on stations. Mm-hmm. And I did work out very early in the piece that I'm not going to end up with my own land working on stations as, you know, as a ringer. And I uh, kept my eye ear to the ground. And at the, in the early 80s, there was a real estate boom just beginning in Alice Springs. And I talked to a friend in Switzerland who was studying economics, and I said, you know, if you can get some money, here's a place where we could sort of ride this wave, and, and he organized a bit of money. So we got involved in real estate with a local partner in Alice Springs. Yeah. And um, I still held my job with Stanbroke. And then a few things went wrong in Alice Springs, so I had to chuck in my job, 
and um, sort the problems out in Alice Springs. And so that's that's really when I cut my ties to the conventional pastoral industry. But I always had my sights set on something, and it was either something small, something run down, or part of something. And yeah, a few years down the track, sort of Kachana seemed to tick all the boxes. Okay, and so did Jackie come along before or after Kachana? Jackie came after Kachana. Really? I, I did. I, wow, I, I have my I, whole timeline mixed up here. No, no, I had to. Interesting. I had to say, come and have a look where I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's what I say. That's even <laughs> I don't more want to challenging. Put the hard work on you. You know, you've, you've got to. Yeah. You've got to, you know. Okay. You to commit. Unfortunately, she. She was blind and did not see what she was committing to. So <laughs> no, yeah, clearly. So she committed and she's still here. So, okay, so let's go. We'll start off with how you got to Kachana then and then we'll, we'll figure out how the hell By you the managed to... By the way, this is my story. The re- story might be different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is your version and then we'll get the truth from her later. Um, yeah, so let, let's talk about how you got to Kachana and then then how you managed to reel in a catch like Jackie. Um, so, because, I, yeah, I thought you just kind of bought her out come out and done this together. So when after, so you're cleaning up a bit, some of the stuff in Alice Springs, so, so, the real so estate. We, yeah. So, so the real, the re- reason why I wanted real estate was my impression already in the first year when I was still a tourist was Australia is different. Yeah. It's very harsh and unforgiving climatically. And if you've got all your eggs in one basket and that happens to be primary production, it doesn't matter how good you are. If it doesn't rain for five years, you have a problem. Yeah. So I wanted some sort of a backstop. Yeah. To so that yeah. so I would, you know, if things got tight, I didn't have agents and banks telling me when to sell and, and whatever. I didn't want that pressure. I'd, I'd, I'd read a few books by then. I'd listened to a few stories. Yeah. Some of the properties I worked for were settled by the forefathers of those who were there. So I, I got to know about a few yeah. histories and uh, the blood, sweat, and tears that went into making what we have. And so, how did how did you end up in Kununurra, um, or out near to find to find Kachana? Oh well, so we were in Alice Springs making money. We realised in '85 that this real estate um, boom is going to be a dumper, mm-hmm. and we needed to get out and find something else. So, and at the time, the Atherton Tablelands, I hadn't been to North Queensland, but it was sort of financially out of our league and. There's three of us, three partners. My my brother joined by then, and and another Swiss friend who'd organised initial finance immigrated as well. So there were three three young bucks um, who were bulletproof, and so we wanted adventure. And we uh, we heard about the Kimberley, and and I met someone who sort of was raving about it, and said, "Come and have a look." And so uh, yeah, that was uh, early early eighty five. We came up here, and Danny and I, and um, had a look around, and we saw the water. And I thought, well, this has to beat um, pulling ho- bores and um, climbing up windmills and turn the windmill and, the, and there's no wind and that sort of thing. Just yeah, the water is what really grabbed me. And and the other thing is the this, the scenery, the feeling. It was only years later that I found out that it's actually geologically related to where I come from. It's the Kimberley was part of Madagascar and Africa and sort of slammed into the Australian continent yeah. later in the piece. So, mm-hmm. so geologically, we're actually, I'm at home anyway. So. Ah, okay. <laughs> and so, and, you know, Kachana wasn't, didn't what exist as Kachana back then. It was a part of El Questro. So how do you just, you know, look at a map or kind of, you know, 
decide oh, I'm going to go ask someone if they want to split off? Like, is that what you did? You just went up to someone and was like, no, hey, you want to... No, no, it was... was it we'd, we'd, we'd realised the Kimberley. We'd, we had one look at... Uh, there was a one block that was going... F- there was one station that was for sale with a detached block. We had a look at that and made the people an offer. That didn't happen. Then there was another property that came up for sale. I came and had a look at that and it wasn't what I wanted. And then the third time I came up to the Kimberley, we came to Kananara. And that's when I saw all the water and that, and then I also saw the real estate potential in Kananara. So we got involved in real estate as the first, that was the first step is step, uh, we were able to step into the real estate, some real estate here. And then I got to know the people at El Cuestro at the time and, um, and at a visit there, I saw the station cupboard, uh, on the station cupboard on the, in the veranda, there was a map of the place and there was this appendage to the south with the Chamberlain River flowing through it. And I said, hang on. And I've, I've been through the upper reaches of the Chamberlain from the last trip, so I've got a feeling, um, you know, that's interesting. And actually, these people were saying that they had more than they can, could handle. They would be looking at selling part of the Equestra, and they were talking about the Yarrabah area at the moment, at the time. But that didn't tick my boxes. I said, well, what's down there? And the guy said, well, I haven't been there. So, so, I, said, so I said, well, maybe that's what I'm after. So he said, well, if you're serious, we'll go halves and a chopper and we're going to have a look. So we did that, and it wasn't what I was after. I was looking for some sweet country and stuff similar to Tableland. But there was, what I saw was these little little wetland areas, these little oases in the middle of this rocky wasteland, or whatever you want to call it, rangeland. And I said, well, this water's got me intrigued, and this was... Um, June, I said, oh, I need to come back here in September when the country's sort of a bit drier and it's at its worst, nature's asleep. And um, yeah, so I did that. I uh, rang up Dad, who was in Switzerland, needed a bit of R&R from an operation he had. I said, come on, need your rangeland experience. Take it out of the car, archives and come and let's go bush together. And so we did a, we did a four-week... Um, Trekking from from via Springvale, Bedford, up the Chamberlain Valley or the Parallel Valleys into Kachana, drove as far as we could get, and then from there on we walked. Every, and, and every time we saw flowing water, we followed it to its source. And, and after twelve days, we'd arranged for a helicopter to come in, and we flew around the country again. And um, then Chopper went out again. We did more walking and to familiarise ourselves with the area. And, and, and Dad and I both came to the same conclusion: it's not cattle country. But it's that that water is an asset, and um, there's tourist potential as well, which suited me because once again, it's just that that backup potential. So, so you don't have to put all your eggs in the pastoral basket, and it's just another way of um, subsidising it. And the, and the other thing is, it's country that I mean, uh, I've, you know, if you, you, you come into the area, it takes years to get to know country, and and I just didn't want to be in a position where I unwittingly end up extracting more than I could the country could sustainably yield. So I wanted to work my way into the pastoral side of things very slowly. And um but anyway, yeah, ticked all the boxes. The the, the owners of Elquestra were happy as well. So jointly we applied for a subdivision for the unviable Elquestra lease and the wheels of bureaucracy ground away and four years later we ended up with a lease. And four years. Yeah, well, I wasn't holding my breath. I was doing work in town and I had real estate to do and stuff. That's commitment. <laughs> wow, that is um, that's a long time to 
go through some paperwork, but not also, yeah. Uh, and so in this time, when did you first meet Jackie? Who's just, oh, well, you know, meanwhile, just living her totally best life off story. in Switzerland. Ja- yeah, Jackie went to school with one of my baby sisters. And so I'd, I'd met oh. her as a, as, a, as, a, as a child. And um, you know, back in 86, I, uh, I had to go over Europe to overseas because my mother was ill and, and there was this beautiful young lady. And, um, well, it wasn't the little Jackie that I'd seen before. <laughs> She's going to blush she, when she uh, listens to this. <laughs> Well, she was very adventurous at the time, and I said, well, if you want adventure, why don't you join me? But come and have a look what I'm doing first. <laughs> and so you guys came, so she came with you to Australia? Yeah, she, yeah so that's uh, February um, 87. We came out, and the first thing we had to do is we had to tidy up a rental disaster in Alice Springs. So she was living in, in sheds while we were cleaning up the sheds and trying to renovate the places after they'd been trashed because... We hadn't been there. And, uh, so I thought, well, it can't get any worse than this. So I proposed to her. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to lock this in right here. Oh, <laughs> poor Jackie had no idea what was coming. <laughs> well, well no, none of us. Yeah. I don't think anybody ever does when they get married. But, no. <laughs> but, but this sort of added a special twist. In. You know, I thought, I, I'm, I'm sure she thought, you know, she at least had flushing toilets and running water coming. Uh, like. Oh, we had flushing toilets, all right. But, but not when you came they, here, right? We we made them very quickly. Yeah. Okay. And so for to and give running water too. We had a running water's the, the bathroom's one of the first things. Things, yeah. Since nineteen fifty nine, GMA has been an Australian owned family company and remains the only Australian manufacturer of UHF C B radios, with their products designed, engineered and manufactured in Sydney's northwest. GMA's products cover a range of recreational activities from fishing to four-wheel driving and touring, in addition to catering for heavy vehicles and agriculture. GMA have released a limited edition range of pink products to raise money for the McGrath Foundation to assist in their tireless efforts of funding regional breast care nurses and supporting families and communities across regional Australia. You can find out more by finding them on Facebook, Instagram or at gma.net.au. And so for for anyone listening, so when you came to Kachana, there was literally no infrastructure here, no old fence posts, no old bits of wire, no nothing. Like nobody had tried to build no, there was a, here before. The only evidence of people passing through was one or two rusting court pots mm-hmm. and uh, – um, Horseshoes cut in half. They would have taken ah. the bullocks over the range here somewhere to win them. So they would have had the leader bullocks and just shot them or bullock went lame. So, yeah. we, so we found a few of those you know, horseshoes that had been cut in half. But that was the only. So why, sorry, why were they cutting the horseshoes in half? To, 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 to shoe the bullock so, so the bullock wouldn't be foot sore. Oh, so I thought you said shoot the bullocks. And shoot. I was like, why are you shooting a bullock with a horseshoe? Okay, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That makes a lot of sense. Also, I would have liked to have seen that. Wow. Um, and so tell us about, you know, one thing that Kachana is known for is its driveway or lack thereof. Um, well, I actually do have a – well, it's a flyway, I suppose, rather than a driveway, <laughs> a runway. Um, yeah, tell us about why Why is Kachana the, the – well, I think it's pretty well the only pastoral lease that I know of that doesn't have a road in. You can only access it by by air. Well, we're camped where the most reliable water was, or oh, was and still is, 
initially we thought we'd, we'd have a driveway and get to the Salmon River. And then in 1988, the salmon just about ran dry. So we realized that's not good enough. So we went to the spring country, which is less accessible. But either, either way, we, to, to put in a road, most of the road maintenance would have been off the property. Mm-hmm. And, um, then there would have been about four months of the year because of the size of the rivers. There would have been about four months of the year where we wouldn't have had access anyway. So to the air kilometer was definitely the cheapest. We sort of crunched the numbers. It, it's proved, well, it's cheaper to maintain a Cessna 206 than to maintain the grader just to maintain the roads. So it's, um, yeah, there, there wasn't much option. We just had to learn to fly and build our airstrips. And and um, who was yeah. out here with you at the time besides Jackie? Who else was flying out here? Was it wasn't oh, anybody right, else? Like? Right, right, early in the piece, Jackie was in town because with the, with the children. So I was right early. I had I had people come, young people wanted to adventure, help me. And sometimes, very often, I was on my own. I'd be out here for two weeks and then go in for a weekend and be out here for two weeks, just creating, building the airstrips, yeah. and um, putting um, putting in. Some infrastructure like some sh- sheds and and uh, also uh, organising a phone service before because yeah, it would have been irresponsible to come out here without some communications with the young children and my business partner by that time you know, Carl dropped out earlier my brother he he you know, he was the first one to get married and his wife didn't want a bar of it so so the the, the kachana was more a thing that Danny and I tried to do and then. Um, Danny's wife, Danny was, Danny had children before I did, so he was based in town. And then we had, and, and Dregler didn't want to come out and do what Jackie did. So Danny was the, my backup in town. So like with all the logistics, we had two way communications. And sometimes I'd have a breakdown here to organize a plane to drop parts off. And you'd have these little parcels dropped from there and you had to find them and, oh my goodness, and whatever. But wow. no, was, yeah. And, and there were a lot of, there, there, quite a few good local friends helping us so so we have there's there's definitely there's no way we could have done this without the support of friends and family and yeah it's just i don't want to say insane that's not the correct word but it's just incredible i suppose that you're out here building from scratch and and so one of the things that's fascinated me the most since i've been out here for the past couple days is that I don't know what percent, 90%, 80% of the infrastructure out here, you've bought out in pieces in your little Cessna. Yeah, so, yeah. like, yeah. we're in, like, a close to 80%, yeah. shed more than, more than 80%. house. I don't know what the right name for this is, but you would think that it's all coming on trucks, you know, steel beams, big pieces of um, corrugated tin, but it's all coming in actual pieces. And if you look closely, it's all been welded together because you just yeah, want so to our structural steel... 2700 is the length that fits in the aircraft, so everything's going to be chopped down to 2700 bits, and, yeah. and then we butt weld them together. And uh, the, the roofing iron, 1800, we can fit in, and then we take screws and silicon. It's, it's amazing what can be done with modern technology. Absolutely. Well, this is the 90s, so it's <laughs> I guess it is modern, but not that modern. <laughs> we did get one laugh uh, when um, I needed a slasher, and I went to the, bought this brand new slasher, drove around to the engineering shop, and I said, you know, could you cut it through here and cut it through here? And the guy said, yeah, but it's brand new. I said, yeah, but it won't fit in the plane. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh, no. Were you worried about being able to weld something like 
you'd want to be pretty confident in your welding skills that you weren't, you know, I've, I've welded something before, nothing important, thank goodness, just when I was learning. And then, you know, if you don't do it right, it doesn't take long. And then it, you know, it'll you realize you just, yeah, yeah it'll, it lets you know. So what if you just might not welded your slasher back together, right? Well, I would have, would have been an expensive misjudgment. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever feel, so you, you flew, Jackie, um, doesn't fly or didn't have a lot of a pilot's license. How did that feel? I just I can only anticipate that there would have been a lot of pressure on you, whether external or, or self-imposed that you're the sole person responsible for getting your family in and out. I mean, if there's emergencies that you did, like you said, you had communication services, you could call people, but really like everything comes down to you. Like you are that person. Yeah, there, for quite a few years, I was in a linchpin situation and it wasn't a good place to be, knowing that you had a um, wife and children and, and, and a business structure that if you, did, you know, if you disappeared too soon, all of a sudden there'd be forced sales and that. So there, there, was, there were quite a few years of anxiety. But um, once, once we had enough, once we had the airstrips under control and we, we've got a an airstrip where commercial people can land and that and we've always had one or two commercial pilots in town who, who could land and, and yeah it's and and also once it got to this level where i knew that the children could have you know could have stepped up to the plate if need be yeah the pressure sort of started relaxing and, and yeah uh, so it's been the last few years have been very pleasant i suppose i just i have a terrible habit of envisioning the worst case scenario and i'm just wondering say this is you know the kids are young you know you cock it or or maybe i don't know become unconscious or something maybe let's not go straight to death and then the phone the communication goes out like how do they i guess you just like they kind of get out i mean i guess they could have walked eventually but did they did jackie know how to walk out like was there a (laughs) no but we or do people check on you every couple of weeks and we certainly, I don't think there's ever been a situation where we couldn't have quite easily just stayed safe for a month without having had to go to Going town. Going yeah. And somebody so, would have noticed eventually so, that so they if, hadn't if, seen if the hanglers. no word from Kachana for over a month. Some, you know, we, we do know enough people and we have got that yeah. many enemies. Okay, Someone cool. would have come to yeah, have a look. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I'm always looking for like, not just, you know, plan A, B and C, but I'm like, I want to go right through to Z. Like, I want, I want yeah, all the it's, plans. It's, it's Danny, my business partner, and myself. Oh, true. We yeah. go back a long way. We were mountain climbing friends, and when you're when you're on the edge of a or on the face of a cliff, yeah, you do like to know is at the other end of the rope. So it's, it's yeah, it's, we do take yeah, no, that's, sensible precautions. That's they a good may point. not tick the conventional boxes of bureaucracy, but we do take safety precautions. Yeah. And what was it like? So you, Kachana itself. While you're building Kachana, you were using off farm income to to build Kachana. So did you have to go and do work in town as well? Or was it No, no, we, we did liquidate some of our assets in Alice Springs mm-hmm. and refinanced and that but no I uh, Danny did the off uh, organized off farm income. He was doing contract work and he started yeah. up another, another business installing satellite installation uh, satellite dish installations and that and so he was he was a he had the high tech side, I had the low tech practical environmental side and yeah. we didn't have much middle ground except for our rental work yeah but um yeah we sort of somehow got things going it's as a business model i certainly would not recommend it to anybody it was a bit of a mess just every spare 
spare dollar was thrown at Kachana and and then just two two little growing families used up the bulk of it. Yeah. What but, was it like raising a family out here for you? I'm sure we'll get a different that was take probably from the Jackie. Best, but. Yeah, for me, that was the best part. I, I had the privilege of um, growing up on a farm and and you, you didn't only just see Dad in the evening like a, as a grumpy old man like a lot of my school friends did at boarding school. But it's, yeah, you... You were there in the morning. You could go and bring him lunch, and then uh, wherever he was, or you could join him on, on a, for a ride around, or you were, you know, he took you along on another horse, or whatever. So I, I have great memories of being able to enjoy both my parents, and and that's something that I wanted to give to my children. I think um, that was great. And the other thing is, I always had the conviction that. Uh, Farm kid has a choice. I've seen, I've seen quite a few city children take to the bush life like a duck to water. But in general, it's a lot easier for a farm kid. They tend to be resourceful, and they've, they, you know, if they want to go to the city, they can. But at least they can, they can live you know, and use their own wits and get by. And that's that's, that's what I sort of liked about raising children in the bush. What sort of things did you guys do together out here? You know, quite literally like a blank canvas. I mean, oh, actually, tell us about, because, you know, not only were you building infrastructure, there are a few pets on Kachana. Um, you've got some horses here, so the kids grew up riding. But tell us about the the littlest pony. Shetland pony. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, once again, with, with farm kids, I think it's, it's, it's good for children to grow up around animals. Because they learn at a very early age that that it's not only about them. You've, they learn to care for other things and and that the things can be vulnerable. And, yeah, so uh, I find one of the best ways to get children out of bed is make them responsible for milking because there's a calf bawling wanting to be fed and a mum wanting to be reunited with the calf. So so that, that's as the milking was the first one and we, we had someone in town with dairy gave us a young dairy heifer, so... So very soon we were producing our own milk. So that, that was a great one to um, get the children onto the right um, foot there. And um, then, of course, horses. What do we do with horses? We had, we, we, had, we, were, we had two old horses, but they were a bit too big. And then, as luck would have it, my sister-in-law in town had this Shetland pony she didn't need. So she said we could have it. So I said, "Well, that sounds good. It'd probably fit in the plane." And I went and saw, and there's this little forty-four gallon drum on drum on two on four legs. And I said, "No, that that will, that pony will have to lose weight." So she put it on a diet for about six weeks, and then sort of I said, "All right, we should be able to get in the aircraft now." And then I sort of one day when it was still dark, we organised. Um, two vets and um, a horse float and we took it to the airport and knocked it out and put it on the stretcher, covered it with sheets so no one could see what we were loading. And <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> this little pony was put in the Cessna and we had one, dre- one so it was out and put in the Cessna. The, the one vet was next to it just... Um, just keeping, in case keep, it woke keep, up. Keeping an eye with an anesthetic yeah. and the other one was behind there with the... With a revolver in case, it, because the last thing you want to do is be 
It's just on short finals and you have a Shetland pony getting up in your cabin. Yeah, so, imagine if I just woke so, yeah, up mid flight. No, it, it's, um, all three of us pilots, all three of us would have lost our license, perhaps, <laughs> or had a, would have had a lot of explaining to do. But yeah, these are the things that back then. Yeah, well, the kids needed a pony. But, you know, we were safe about it. So we, we did, there was nothing irresponsible about it safety wise. Yeah. Just, just. It's just very unconventional. The dairy calves were less of a problem. You could just tie them down and and um, yeah, true. I just want to I just want to run back to this driveway thing, just in case. I suppose I'm so familiar with the story, but I'm just wondering if I went over it too fast for the people who aren't familiar with Kachana's story. Is that so? There is sort of a driveway, but it's not a real. It needs to be maintained, like you said, with a grader. Well, you couldn't use oh, it all year no. round. So you, because I just remember you wrote a story about you did use it sort of once, yeah. but it took you, was it three weeks to get this, to, yeah. to no, traverse no. the 80 kilometers? Yeah, back in the 60s, apparently that was when the last big mineral boom was, and there, yeah. there were greater tracks and bulldozer tracks through this country yeah. from prospectors. And, and we located some of those tracks and we were able to use them. And, and and fix them up a little bit, tidy them up um, with our tractor and front end loader, mm-hmm. and that enabled us to 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 drive in with a tractor and a trailer and and a, and a vehicle. But um, it 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 took us quite a bit of maintenance and road work to get to the stage where we could actually get from uh, from El Cuestro into the central Kachana area within. Um, Eight hours, mm. but then from to get from there to where the water was, we had to do an eighty-three kilometer detour through three different stations, go south, cross the Chamberlain, wow. cross the range, and then come back up in this valley. And um, but there was tracks there, like yeah. I'd seen them from the air, and then picked them up from the motorbike, flagged them, yeah, and then um, with the tractor, we were able to sort of blaze our way. Through. So that was three and a half weeks, including all the breakdowns that we had. Yeah, and how many so, flight tires was it? Well, the one trip was four, uh, sorry, three rear tractor tires, four front tractor tires, and sixteen trailer tires. We had I had um, had that these felt- two Swiss guys helping me. They had, they had, they had to pay ten cartons of beer for the privilege and five hundred dollars, <laughs> and. And they were cooking for me, and one was a, one was a cook, and the other one was a computer programmer. But I guarantee, when they went back to Switzerland, they could have changed any kind of farmer's tire. tire anywhere. Because the problem with the, the the tractor tires is you had to fix them on site. You couldn't just you know, yeah, you couldn't just wait. So so, and then and we seldom staked a tractor tire under a shady tree. And this was um, October, so it's yeah, and we had some very hot. Weather and it's brutal. And that's a, brutal that's a place. lot of tires they, that fell victim they, to those eighty-three kilometers. They did a good job. I just think, you know, three three weeks or three and a bit weeks to drive eighty-three kilometers. You know, now we can do that in like you know anywhere else in the world. You do eighty-three kilometers in you know forty-five minutes. Like, well, hang on, we well not in a tractor did, though, but yeah, with a with a chopper, we did it in two minutes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so we spend more time warming up the machine and shutting it down than um, actually flying. Yeah, That's yeah. A- Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs. 
including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. Kachana had some cattle when you came here on it. Kachana was officially overstocked when we arrived. Yeah. And part of the deal, part of the conditions were that we destock. So we, we, Peter Camp was the only man that I knew who was capable of the job. And it was, and, and it wasn't worth our while for a once of operation to get all the gear. So, so Peter came in and, um, on a contract basis and did the destocking. Okay. So we've spoken a bit about, you know, finding Kachana or how you came to Australia, finding Kachana, the fact that you, you just settled or, or developed, um, you know, or built, built an enterprise from scratch on Kachana. And earlier I was saying it's a cattle station and you're like, well, technically it's a pastoral lease, you know, they're slightly different things. And I think that's something a lot of people will find very interesting and something that I've had, you know, been trying to get my head around for the past few years is this is a pastoral lease. There are cattle here, but, you know, and as I'm sure people have picked up and that's why I asked about, you know, the off, the off farm income is that you don't sell the cattle, which is partially due to the fact that there's not a road out and we can't really just load them up in an aeroplane and send them to market. Um, But also you've chosen to, from my understanding, you can tell me if I'm correct, but Kachana has been an opportunity for you to, rather than run it as a commercial cattle business, you're, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. So, you know, you've got a commercial cattle business where your main enterprise and goal is to produce beef. That's your income, yada, yada, yada. Whereas Kachana is a pastoral lease where you're doing a number of different things that don't necessarily involve the cattle being sold. It's, it's almost, it's almost like a, I feel, I know you may not like this choice of words, but like a private research station in a way, like it's, you're able to do, I can't tell from the way you're looking at me Mm -hmm. if I'm getting this right or not, but you're able to do things without that pressure of, um, you know, because there's so many things I know a lot of people would like to do, but at the end of the day, if they're, if that main enterprise is their commercial income, you know, they, everything kind of has to come back to that point. Whereas if the cattle aren't your main commercial income here, you're able to, you've been able to do some different things. I've probably just explained that in a very convoluted roundabout way that's left some people confused, but Kachana is a cattle station that doesn't sell its cattle is the, is one way to is say the it. intriguing part. Which is why you, why you don't like to refer to yourself as a cattle station, no, but as no, a pastoral lease. No, no, it's, no, it's lease. more, it's, 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 I don't, um, what we're doing is very different and I certainly don't want to be, um, telling anybody how to suck eggs and, and, and I can't say that, um, what we're doing is representative for industry standards. Yeah. It's, it's, it's country that had been abandoned by its original inhabitants. It's had never contributed to any industry. It was ignored by the pastoral industry. And in my bulletproof naive way as a young buck, I thought, well, I could compensate for lack of experience, lack of local knowledge and lack of funds by just perseverance and trying to apply the best sense that I could. Mm-hmm. And it's, Taken a lot longer, but um, what what we what we always wanted is um, enough cattle for self sufficiency, and and there were about between eight to twelve hundred head here when we arrived, and I was legally allowed to have about three hundred and three hundred head managed properly as long as it's not your core income. 
it should be a viable enterprise and it certainly wouldn't cover all the overheads, but it should be a, a viable opportunity, you know, a viable enterprise in its own right. If you could sell them and get them off the property, do you mean? If you could manage them, you should be able to produce good beef. And I always mm-hmm. said, well, I will be paid by paying guests to walk them off. And if I don't get the right price, I'll have paying guests paying me to walk them back and I'll compost them. Yeah. Because you don't, unless you've got a financial death wish, you don't go that far out into whoop whoop and buy an isolated station and or take on a lease in isolated country. It's totally unproductive and think you can compete with the industry. So I'm, that's what I'm saying is I'm not, I'm not an industry player. Yeah. And so, so if, if industry players see my results, you know, they've got to look at the context as well. However, the learning curve began when I really started by noticing that by the time we actually got out here, the very areas that attracted us is swampland and spring country were deteriorating at a very rapid rate. So that's when I had to, that's when I realized we actually have a, a problem and the, and the farmer and me and I've got farm blood from both sides of the family and um, it just rebelled. I, I, I was, I, there's no way that I could make money with tourism despite all the potential, not knowing how I could stop the degradation that I was seeing on an annual basis and so the, the the question is what what do I do about the deterioration? So that's when I had to start digging back digging into my African knowledge where where we where we could um, use herbivores to keep the vegetation healthy and the vegetation to hold the soils. And that's about the you know the base of my knowledge at the time is that, you know if you keep the plants healthy, you know, the mowing. Well, start again, the, the mulching, even fertilizing and the pruning of plants that a herd does, managed as a herd, you can improve soils and, and hold soils. And that's what, what Dad was doing in, Af- in Africa in the 50s and 60s. So I, I knew that worked. So I didn't know it would, whether it would work here. And I sort of ran and passed the departments. That, and this was all pre-97, thank God. And um, so I got the blessing from the department to try what what. what just try, see what happens. So we were able to fence off an area and I, I started experimenting and, and by 97 I was getting some very encouraging results. But the, the question, and, and so so I'm an exotic species. My lease tells me I've got to use exotic species and then I'm allowed to eat. In no? terms of cattle, do you yeah, mean? Well, Sorry? Yeah, cattle. Okay. Exotic, I just wanted to clarify that because yeah. technically on pastoral leases in WA, people have to apply for a permit to, to no. plant exotic plants yeah. so but when you say ex- exotic species that you have to use you mean yeah so so, we, so, 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 so we're all new flora. here anyway right yeah so yeah. just the europeans came a few years later yeah. than the, yeah. the first humans that came to australia but we are new mm-hmm. so um and we brought new animals with us and the industry ended up bringing a lot of new plants with us as well mm-hmm. and they were already in use in the kimberley so there's uh, there's there's nothing that I brought to Kachana that wasn't already used within the industry in other parts of Australia, but yep. uh, but this was pre-permit system or whatever. So my idea was use the animals to stabilise the soils, mm-hmm. and then at least we've got what we, the you know the basic ingredients in place. Without you're not you're not you're not losing the soils because you need sunshine, soil, and water. But that was my stockman knowledge at the time. Question was, 
with these spectacular results, had I just set myself up for failure 30 years down the track, had I and I just introduced a mining operation that just went deeper with these deeper rooted introduced pasture, pasture species. So that's when I had to go back to school, 97, which I did. And um, school meant things like um, understanding soil science or understanding what happens in the soils, what happens with grazing, what happens animals in the, the animal side was, was, you know, fortunately I'd sort of got that right more or less. And then, but um, then through RCS, I was able to find out that dad's school of thought back in Africa had sort of migrated south and gone to the States and all of and that there were people in Australia as well. So I wasn't the only one with this line of thought. And then, and I was very soon was able to compare notes with other people addressing similar challenges in a similar way. So, so yeah, so the idea is cattle to rebuild the, the foundations for pastoral productivity. And then on those foundations, well, build the enterprises that you want. Now it, it could be a fattening, it could be a, a breeding enterprise, it could be a tourist enterprise or whatever. But, but, uh, you know, the, uh, as I see it, the primary role of a pastoral lessee is the custodianship of, of the, the resource. Land. So and, over the last, would it be fair to say over the last 20 to 25 years, you've been on a holistic management and regenerative agriculture learning experience pathway? On the past? 20 to 25 years? Past 40 years. Okay. Oh, uh, but with Kachana. Like, yeah. But yeah. No, but I came to Australia. Yeah, already. It's, it's, yeah it's, okay. You know, yeah, that's Where fair. can I apply my knowledge and, 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 yeah. and, and in a way that we can actually pass it on to the next generation in at least as good a condition as we found it? Yeah. So, in, and so, you so, came so here. working as a stockman, you see a lot of things. And I've worked my way across the north. I, I don't know the southern areas here too well, but, but sort of from Queensland Territory. And, that, and you could see there was, you know, like, Erosion, bare ground. There's, there's, there's a lot there, and and it's safe to say that that, especially after having worked for a company like Stanbroke, that that a lot of the money in the pastoral industry has come from mining, the new the the productivity of our soils, and then later selling land at a capital gain. It's it's not all. If we take it, if we really analyse it, it's not as if we've, in general made the country more productive. Yeah. Now, there's a few a few more episodes I want to do with you because there's so much for us to cover, but I just want to see if I can sort of um, just just summar- summarise or kind of encapsulate what you were saying. You said you come to Kachana. I'm wondering for people listening that may, you know, I, I'm thinking if I was listening to this for the first time, you've said you've come here, it's never been run as a past release before, no – you know, enterprise development, it's just basically virgin country. And then, but then you've also just said, you know, it was not at its peak or at its prime, there was degradation and erosion. And, and I think initially for many of us, that doesn't marry up because you say, hang on, this is country that's, you know, pristine, pristine and, and perfect. And it's had minimal interference. So why wouldn't it be at its best? And so that's been a learning journey as opposed to understand how that has come about. So my understanding is that without, without going into this in too much detail, because, um, because yeah, we could, we could do a whole podcast series on this. So I'll try and keep it brief, but long story short, <laughs> how do I say this? Um, the 
the way it goes back thousands and thousands of years, but landscape needs to be managed in a certain way. Like it's not, you know, there's a whole ecosystem of, you know, from the bugs down in the soil that you can't even see with the naked eye to the big, you know, animals that you can see out on the outside. And then you've got wind, water, rain, fire, whatever, all that stuff. Um, and through changes in the ecosystem, you know, just throughout time and with, you know, man coming around and different changes and all that, that things have changed and the cycle changed. And the at some point, it, there was kind of a bit of a breakdown. And so while, while the environment here is, you know, ticking along, it's not thriving. Like the yeah. soils have been, it's been like a very steady decline. Yeah. Well, let's, let's look at this. Let's use a few analogies here. In savannah systems mm-hmm. worldwide, the fuel is sunshine. Mm-hmm. Right? So sunshine gets beamed into a savannah system on average 12 hours a day. And the job of the pastoralist is to get that sunshine and pack it in wool, meat, mutton, whatever, uh, beef. Yeah. Right? You, now, if the pastoralist is not there, a savannah system should still be functioning. Mm-hmm. So you have you have sunshine coming in through green leaves. You've got plants, uh, animals keeping those plants healthy. You've got plants feeding the microorganisms in the soil, in the root zone. You've got other little beasties that process what comes out of the tail end of the animal, and that goes into the soil. And um, what gets stomped down, the, the mulching and helps the plants as well. So it's 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 it's, it's that you've got fuel being supplied and you've got some system to pick up that fuel and push it into the system. Mm-hmm. And the wheels fell off in Australia when we lost the big megafauna many, many thousands of years ago, according to our scientists. Now, for thousands of years, those humans who survived that demise were able to keep some sort of a balance going by what couldn't be biologically cycled through animals, and there were only the small animals left, they used fire to to get rid of the vegetation that otherwise would have been a, a fire hazard mm-hmm. or choked new growth. So that the, the the situation when the pastoral industry arrived in the Kimberley would have been just that. There would have been a, a countryside reliant on human behavior and call it management if you like, but on human um Inputs, mm-hmm. the way they fired, the, uh, the way they used fire, the way they hunted, and all the knowledge that a lot of it's been lost, but humans were doing it. Now, what happened when the pastoral industry arrived, these humans were taken out of the landscape. And uh, the best, the best um, analogy that I can come up with is after having driven, dri- driving over, after having driven over Sydney Harbour Bridge at rush hour, when everything's bumper to bumper and moving and you, you actually, you've just got to tell yourself that bridge is solid and, and, you know, it's not everything's moving, it's just all the cars are moving. If I had quickly taken my foot off the accelerator, well, I would have had a pile-up. Mm-hmm. And I could say, oh, I did nothing. Well, no, I did. I took the foot off the accelerator. By taking the, the managers of the country out of this landscape, which was the human, we caused a pile-up, an ecological pile-up, and that is still happening. So blaming the pastoralists or blaming our animals for the environmental degradation is just like blaming the guy who steals the the battery or the tires off the wrecks that come along in the pileup. 
So, so yeah. I'm not talking about the industry country. The no. industry country, the Downs country, where the partialists came to, there was a different. They would, I suspect, there would have been a very different scenario there. Yeah, but up but, here, but these, this country was abandoned, inherent, and pastoralism yeah. didn't come here. Mm-hmm. So it's just no different to you, you can have the be- most beautiful lawn in Kananara if you just decide, well, I'm not going to mow it this wet season and um, no one's going to be there that dry season. Well, come September, October, all you need is one match yeah. and that's going to be an incredible mess. And that's what's happened in this range country that no one knew about and it was happening. And when we arrived here, we sort of saw the tail end and, and, and that had, of these fires, there was – the, the, the fuel loads are just about gone. There were still a few peaty swamps that could grow stuff. And, and yeah, so, so the, the ecological nightmare that was unfolding in our backyard wasn't visible to people in the yes. conventional industry and certainly not visible to people driving along the highway at 120 kilometers an hour. But when you're looking down on the country and like, uh, like we do when you fly to town, it took me 12 years of flying to realize that, hang on, this forest has actually lost half its canopy just in the time that I was flying. Now I fly over... And we'd say, it hasn't, well, it hasn't got a canopy, and there's a great big gully going through there. So, so we, we're, we're losing so much vegetation and, this, and then ground cover and then soils and just without even being there. So it's a. And so, what you've been doing on Kachana without, you know, because you don't have to man. I hope this doesn't sound wrong, but like, because you don't have to manage it as a commercial cattle property because you've got that. Because it's because it's run differently. Is that am I saying this right, or is it just sounding offensive? <laughs> no, I'm I'm just building the foundations for commercial activity. Yeah, like, yeah. Like it's part of the pastoral lease to have a commercial herd, and and yes. someone picked, you know, pulled me up on that. And he said, you know, hang on, don't you have to have a commercial herd? Well, I, I'll argue that if I'm improving the, the the carrying capacity of the land with my herd, it's, it's it has an applica- yeah. commercial application. Yes, it's just I'm not realizing a profit at this stage. Yes, I'm building. Yeah. It's like a. Yeah. Own a home builder, like owner builder situation. Yeah. You know, if you build your house yourself, it just takes a lot longer than getting in the contractors. Yeah. But so essentially what you've spent your time here at Kachana doing is, is you've got lots of little projects going on, but you've, you've been finding a way and, and doing so much learning and you, you know, you go away from Kachana, you bring people to Kachana to try and work out opportunities and strategies to basically rebuild ecological health build back that soil, you know, this is stuff that's been going on for hundreds, probably thousands of years, you know, slow, you know, whatever's been happening and you're just trying to find a way and it's, and it's fascinating and that's why I'll save it for another episode, but I just kind of want to leave, leave people with an idea of the work you do here so they can also go and find you on Facebook and the website and come out and visit, you know, maybe, well, maybe not because you have to be invited or you have to have a pilot's license. Um, you can't just rock up literally um, unless you want to walk for several weeks but you're you're doing work here to see how cattle can be used to improve or not to improve but to regenerate the landscape to its to to how it should function or could function better yeah and and initially it was sort of self-serving because you know we put in money and we put time and we have ambitions but it was only as i started learning and and with more flying i realized hang on this it's not a local problem. We have a challenge in the whole region, and in fact, in Northern Australia. So, 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 what I'm learning, in my mind, has a relevance to most undermanaged or or not managed country in Northern Australia. So, it's um, that's that's when I decided. Uh, well, maybe I need to tell people about it, and um, 
And then the, the shoot the messenger <laughs> syndrome <laughs> came in and I made myself unpopular. But, um, but you know, it's, it's not about us. It's not about egos. It's really about what do we want to leave behind uh, for our grandchildren. So yeah. I can cop a bit of flack if, if my grandchildren can thank me for it later. Yeah. And I'll Even put links. I not be around. <laughs> I'll put, my granddad was that crazy guy from Kachana. No, not really. Um, I will, I'll put links in the show notes to this episode and, you know, people can go and find your website, or your Facebook or the stories you've written for us on Central Station with some of the more specific projects you've done. But basically you've been trialing different different combinations and regimes of grazing, not in terms of, you know, well, it's, different grazing yeah. models, fire models, just to see how you can, and you've had some really exciting results in terms of building back soil and bringing life back into the soils i i actually don't like the word trialing i'm because I'm, I'm not in, there's nothing that i've invented here i'm i'm testing solutions that have worked very well and are working very yes. well in other parts Absolutely. of the world i'm just testing them for local relevance to see you know what what works here and what do we have to tweak so it makes sense in this yeah. in these contexts yeah yeah, and so I think there's – I definitely want to come back and do another episode because there's so much, and it's actually really exciting once you get into it. For anyone who's listening, I'm sure, like, trust us, guys, it's going to be good. But, yeah, to, to definitely visit the Kachana website and see the work that, yeah, you would think, like I said before, you would think a pristine, untouched, you know, minimally interfered landscape would just be that pristine, you know, and maybe from – at first glance from... And self-sustaining, which it wasn't. Wasn't, yeah. And so from first glance, you know, people say it's pristine, but from first, you know, if you look underneath the soils, it wasn't pristine because yeah. there wasn't as much life there as should have been there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's great work you're doing out here. And is there anything, um, I suppose, you'd like to tell people before we wrap up about if they want to... Actually, let's do this. Let's do a few book and video and audio recommendations. I've done this in some of my episodes before, but if people are interested, obviously aside from visiting the Kachana website, um, but there's all different. We've watched a few videos out here. You've got a whole library full of books. Let's, let's pick some of your favorites. So if people want to go and read up a bit more or they're a bit intrigued, where would you, and who are the, some of the people you would point people towards? They want to go learn more about this regenerative agriculture, especially, you know, in a pastoral context, but that's still fairly new. But yeah, who, who, you know, I'm just looking at some of the books that I've got the microphone sitting on here. Um, what, what's some things you'd recommend? That's, that's, that's a hard one because uh, not everybody's interested in the technical stuff. Most of my books are the, 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 the technical, the detail, mm-hmm. but I'd say that the single best book for a broad understanding of the challenge is Dan Daggett's book, the Gardeners of Eden, our importance to nature, because it it's 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 written in a way that anybody every, anybody can can understand the, the challenge, and then you can start asking questions. And I encourage people if they read this book or, or visit our vex- website, if they have questions, just send an email, ask the question, because we can just answer from our perspective. We are we are all still learning. And um, the idea of actually using animals to improve landscapes and to get landscapes to be self-reliant again, that's all new. So for historically, our industry is based on extracting la- from the landscape to feed people who can't feed themselves. Now we're saying, well, we want to extract in a way that's, that we can sustain that extraction. But the regenerative movement is about not sustaining 
a basket case. It's about rebuilding or <laughs> filling the basket so that it can once again yield to its capacity. And we have no idea what uh, a healthy Kimberley could produce. Uh, just I think that the best results that I've had so far are just an indicator that they've just, if anything, have just wet my appetite. It's, it's really, we really don't know how much is possible. But what I can safely say is we do have to work with nature and not against her. Absolutely. That was a really succinct uh, explanation of, you know, mining versus regenerative ag. Now, so we've got the Dan. Dan Daggett. Dan Daggett book. And then any other books or I know um, there's. Some For those short, who short actually films. sit in the saddle, I would, and, and look at the ground, I would. I would highly recommend um, holistic management, a new framework for making decisions. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a doorstopper. But <laughs> oh, as God. far as as far as understanding how the ecosystem works, yeah, it can save you an awful lot of time and a lot of mistakes. Yeah, and especially someone getting into the industry, I highly recommend working your way through that. What about you should just read a chapter every. Every week, the um, hundred thousand beating hearts. There's some great video stuff, and yeah, and yeah, you know, if so if somebody's you know not ready to commit to a whole book, yeah. you know, we've got the some short videos. Yeah. I mean, that was only ten minutes, so that was maybe ten fifteen. It seemed like 10, 10 minutes. It's actually twenty minutes. It's, oh, it's, really? It's so riveting. Yeah, no. It's, wow. The, the, the soil carbon cowboys. The, there's there's some great video clips, and, and we've got links to them all over our website. But we yeah. will, we will set up a page with just recommended links and, and resources. Absolutely. For those interested, yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Steph. See you next time. (laughs) I'll be back.